0: but discomfort brings growth, and oftentimes, tragedy brings joy. So, tie, buckle, slip on, release up your shoes, and join me as we begin our 1,000 Tiny Steps. Hey, everybody. Welcome to 1,000 Tiny Steps. Episode number four. It's been a while. I mean, you you get the podcast every week, so it's on schedule for you. <laughs> Thanks, to my wonderful editor. But I haven't sat down here for about 10 days. I recorded the first three episodes relatively quickly, but I've just had a very, very hectic, busy time. So I'm recording this on September 17th, and my family yesterday spent the day with some TV folks who are doing a follow-up to the birth of Jack. And I have to say, you know, a lot of responsibility comes with motherhood. So before I get into it, I just want to comment on how important and special Jack's arrival is. And the weight that it carries, you know, making sure he has a good, happy life and that our family is balanced, that Gracie and Kenny are okay and that I'm okay. But also he has this wonderful message to share. His existence can serve to help other people and bring happiness. So it, it was a long, exhausting day. And I'm, I'm really starting to enjoy the process of the podcast. It's nice and, and a bit cathartic to talk about these things. Uh, so I'm sort of starting off, not on topic at all, but it's sort of the headspace that I'm in. We spent the whole day yesterday reliving Molly and and her experiences and our experiences losing her. I talked a lot about working out, how fitness for me has been my method of meditation and prayer always, my whole life, sometimes escape too, I have to be honest. And then we talked about Jack and his arrival and what that meant for each of us. And all of us have very different, you know, I've said before, maybe not here a lot, but much of our life here is three people living in the same home, doing the best they can on their own. We live very parallel lives sometimes. What you see on the outside is known as what goes on, on the inside, and, and Jack has crystallized this for us, that we can bring many positive things to him, even in our sort of weakened, sad, traumatized state. We had wonderful camera people. I will tell you, the universe does work in, in special ways, and the, the two gentlemen that showed up to do all the filming were empathetic and kind, kind of hippie-ish. <laughs> they had to ski and eat healthy food. It was fun, really, really fun talking to these gentlemen and then my house so any of you who know me know that <laughs> my house is a disaster we didn't do much since molly died so when i realized i was going to have cameras in here potentially putting me on national television we did a big uh, huge huge cleaning so i hired i hired a friend of mine who was a was a professional organizer before she was a spiritual mentor so yeah karen kenny rises to the top again and it was about 20 hours worth of really you know Part of it was just getting things out of the way temporarily so the house could be neat and clean. And part of it was really trying to create flow in my home that didn't feel like I was disappearing Molly and then, you know, honoring her. And the funniest thing, the really the funniest thing, and when you see this on TV, those of you who know me and know my house will know what I'm talking about. The room off the living room is a room that Molly and Gracie had used as a playroom forever and we kept it full of their stuff. So since Molly died, that was just the room where everything went. And when I had my brain tumor surgery and had to sleep downstairs, we took all the junk out of that room and put it into the front room that I used for my office. And I used a lot of my recovery of the brain tumor sorting through things. And we, that was a big cleaning at that time. But when, when I invited Karen to help me here, when I hired her to help me get ready for these TV people, I said, this room is too much. I can't look at it. Let's just hang a curtain. And we were going to hang a very nice curtain and just ignore the room. But we have the Molly Bee tree and all of these different things that really play a, play a role in the flow of our house. So I had sort of decided in my head, you know, I really should do that room. And Kenny had said, we really need to have that room clean. It's part of the. So Karen comes and says to me, you know, I've been thinking we need to clean this room. So we, we clean the room. We, we get everything out. We organize it. We move. We just, it was difficult. I, I felt sick most of that day. And then there was some artwork on the wall. A couple of pieces really evoked sad memories for me and unhappiness. And she said, well, let's just move the artwork then. Let's center this picture and take down anything you don't want here and all this. And uh, wouldn't you know, the filming took place in that room. Like, that's the room they chose to do everything. And I, and I thought I was going to have a, a curtain hiding it the whole time. So just a, just a little introduction to the day on the, the power of one spiritual team or karma or scientific energy in the universe, whatever you wanna call it. I just feel like those who are looking out for me were really, really guiding how we got ready for the camera people. So episode number four in the story of Jack. This will be really about the IVF process, what it's like and what it entails. One of the biggest questions I get asked was that once I got pregnant, was I worried about complications? And I would have to say no because the process is so complete and so thorough. You take a thousand tiny steps before you have an IVF transfer, even the healthiest youngest of women who are going through whatever health issues cause them to not be able to create a child, everything is looked at. So by the time you're okay to have the transfer, which is what they call when they put the embryo in everything's been looked at. Of course, things can could come up that you weren't waiting for or the normal pregnancy risks that anyone, any woman has. That's the biggest question was I worried and I was not because everything was so thoroughly done. So I finished episode three after all the brain tumors and kidney transplants and all of that. So here we are now in the summer of 2019. So that August was when I started the process again. And that was a pretty big August. My friend, Little A, got married. I performed the wedding ceremony. That was such an honor. Oh my gosh, that was a wonderful experience. Kenny's son, Davy got married. That was a beautiful, beautiful wedding. And during all this time, I'm starting the process to do an IVF transfer. So as I have explained before, I believe, they they spend you know shots in the butt, Patches, pills, all these things you have to do to ready yourself for an IVF transfer in that in the summer. And I think I can't. I think in July I did a whole month of that. They had to see where I was. So they, you take the medicine. They do an ultrasound. They look inside your uterus to see that the lining is thickening properly. They take blood. You know, they do all of it. They, they monitor it completely. You go, you go once a week. You know, for these ultrasounds and this blood work, and then you get a call later that says, okay. Do this, make this alteration, stop doing this, add this. It really is specific. And luckily for me, I didn't have to do the shutdown procedure first. Women who are still fertile on their own, they shut you down completely so that the doctor is completely controlling every bit of The conception of this baby. Well, not the conception happens in a test tube, (laughs) but you know, it's very, very methodical on their part. So, and very different, I would imagine, woman to woman. So July and August of 2019, I was going through the process again. So increasing the estrogen, adding the progesterone, having a period, starting it again, patches on the on the tushy, you know, all the different things that that make the process work. I had my first IVF transfer at the end of August in 2019. And have to say, I would I would have to say that I knew right away that nothing was happening. I knew I was pregnant with Gracie and Molly long before I tested positive. So my, my positive tests were not a surprise. I didn't know I was pregnant with baby Gordy, but I was on the pill and you know I think I think that interfered a lot with you know what 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 I was feeling and I wasn't looking for it at the time either. It was the last thing I thought would be possible. We're going through the process, you know, day by day waiting. They tell you don't ever take a pregnancy test when you go home from, from your IVF transfer. They say, you know, don't, don't just wait the 10 days. You're just going to make yourself worry. They also tell you to go home and rest. And they qualify that by saying, you could go home and do jumping jacks for 10 straight days. It's not going to affect, nothing you do will actually affect the outcome. But they know that women are self-blaming creatures. And we are, we are. I I blamed myself. What could I have done to make that baby in me have a heart defect? I blamed myself a million times over Molly's death. I think as mothers, we're hardwired to protect our, our babies when something happens, the first thing we do is look at ourselves. So they, they tell you, go home and rest so that if it doesn't work, you can't, you don't have any reason to blame yourself, <laughs> which I think is actually pretty magical thinking psychologically for young mothers, old mothers, mothers trying to have babies. The doctors really do tell you. So that transfer was fun. Dr. Cardoni, as I said, is just a wonderful guy. He's just phenomenal. So all of my appointments were at his office, but Boston IVF is where the transfers take place. And that's a central clinic that, that a lot of smaller practices utilize for their IVF transfers. I went there. And so the procedure is, you know, non-invasive at all. You lie down, put your feet in stirrups, like you do for every OBGYN appointment you've ever had. And that you get a picture of the embryo, which is a pretty profound thing. And so I had two, both times I am put in two. part of it was what the heck, if they, if, they, if I grow two babies, and they each have a sibling. And part of it was the safety feeling like, you know, like if I have a better chance, if I put two in the likelihood that one of them will live, is, is good you know so it was a bit of both. So we went to the transfer it's the transfer day. I'm jumping around a bit, I apologize. Drive to Waltham, sit in the room. Dr. Cardoni comes in he's so kind and he just how are you doing and this is exciting and you know it's exciting. they try to make it they try to make it as exciting as possible because these little embryos are being put into your body. That was in August of 2019. so it did not take. I was in my fabulous swimming pool in my yard on the day that I got the call that, it, that I was not pregnant. I wasn't surprised. I, I said, you know, I let Kenny know that, no, it, it didn't work. It didn't take. And then I asked the nurse, you know, so uh, am, do I, do I come back? Am I done? Is it over? Like, what do we do from here? And she advised me, just keep taking your hormones and come for a follow-up appointment. So I kept taking the esterase, um, the estrogen, and I had an appointment about two days, two weeks later. So at this, this time now I'm 56, it's 2019. And, you know, some people, women that are really doing this because they've never had a baby really, really struggle when they aren't pregnant, because for them, the, the purpose of the whole thing is the baby. I know this will sound strange to people, but the purpose for me wasn't the baby. It was the process of having a baby. So when the pregnancy didn't work, my first thought was, well, I wasn't supposed to have a baby. It was all about finding the brain tumors and fixing my mouth and all, and all the things that followed through Kenny's kidney transplant. I was a bit bummed, and in some ways too. I love having a purpose, a goal, something I'm working for. So I thought, well, all right, what do I do now? So we went to the doc, back to the doctors, and we sat down. Doctor Cardoni comes in, and, and he, he remarked that he was very unbelievably surprised to take, and that he thought it must have been the quality of the embryo and not my body, because he said nothing in my body was was you know holding me back. So that was a, a good to hear. So I sort of said to him. So can we try again? And he grins at me and says, are you going to twist my arm here? And he pulls out a list, a list of things he wants to do differently. This was actually a big relief to me because I just, I guess I just felt that if, if it could happen, it was supposed to happen and that we would try again. So the first time around, all of the, the rigorous tests that we had to have, I had to have an updated mammogram. I had to have an updated colonoscopy. I had to have blood work, a complete physical, I'm asthmatic. So I had to have a complete lung physical. The things I had to do to be approved for having this baby didn't have to be done again. I did all of that in the fall of 2018. There's also a psychological component to this. They have, they have a psych, they give you a list of people. So it was that we did it on the iPhone. It was pre COVID, but the therapist was willing to just let you do it from your own home. And, And Kenny's piece too, as the male component to this, as the, you know, Potential caretaker of the baby, along with me, you know, as the other parent, he had to go through rigorous, rigorous health as well. So here he is, has just received a kidney transplant. So he passed all the health stuff before his transplant. Obviously, the health of the father isn't of concern in the quality of the pregnancy, but you know, the, the having a baby, have parents and all that sort of thing. So he had to have EKGs and different tests and blood work as well, just to show sort of his level of health and and all of that. You go through all of the drug testing. You go through everything. I mean, you really do go through all of it. So. The psychological piece, I was concerned because, you know, we've lost a child and we have chronic illness and all of the tragedy and trauma that goes along with that. It was an unbelievably productive conversation with this woman. She really talked about all sorts of things. She talked about the realities of IVF and the the complexities of creating a baby in a non-traditional way. We talked about losing Molly. We talked about Gracie. And Gracie at this time was completely unaware that this process was even existing. Once the brain tumors were found, I sat my mother and Gracie down and explained that the only reason I knew I had these tumors was because I was, I was seeing a fertility specialist about having a baby. My sister-in-law, Kathy knew, you know, and so, so, but then that was that we stopped talking about it. And I think the assumption that everyone made was that you know, now that I'd found the tumors, I didn't need to follow through on it. When the first round didn't take, I let, I believe I let my mother know. I kept Gracie out of it. And, you know, sometimes in when I'll get to that in another podcast, but I think in hindsight, it might've been better to keep her involved in the loop. My thought at the time was that she had too much on her plate already. And these are things that I shared with this psychiatrist in the meeting on the phone. And this was all in the fall of 2000. All of that goes into play. And then all the physical testing as, as I start to take the hormones to see how my body reacts, all of that goes into play as well. 2019 ends. And we've decided that we'll try again. So my appointment was in September. So October, November, December of 2019 was starting the process again, staying on the estrace, the weekly ultrasounds, having a period. And they like to have you have a couple of cycles so that they see that they're controlling them. And, you know, this will sound weird and I know it's a bit personal, but, you know, I always had really heavy periods like cramps and all that kind of stuff. And when I was super fit or on the pill, I often didn't get a period at all. So I either had these super heavy periods or no period. For me, part of my identity as a woman is the fact that I can create a life and grow it. And it's a very difficult process. Menopause can feel like the end of life for women because their ability to recreate appears to be over in a natural sense. It is, you know, men can father children their entire life. They just have to find a young woman and this opposite sort of reality for women can be devastating. It just makes you feel old and a bit useless So that's how it made me feel. You know, when I lost Molly, when menopause hit me. So, so all of those emotions come into play. I never disliked having my period. It reminded me what my body could do. Uh, man, you all might think I'm nuts. I think we've ascertained that I probably am. But losing my period was another loss for me. It just made me sad. So there was all of that, all of those emotions going into getting ready for Jack. So we're, we're recreating it. So the, so Dr. Cardoni did some different tests. I had a, a couple of hysteroscopies, different things on his end that he did differently that I don't even know all those details. I just always did what I was doing. So the process was going along and we were preparing for a, like an April transfer, which would have been like a December baby. COVID hits <laughs> and suddenly everything stopped. So the only the only patients that could continue their fertility treatments were those that were, you know, inactive, like the transfer is happening, or that they've just had the transfer, or you know, so so a lot of those patients were allowed to continue, but patients like me who, who hadn't quite gotten there yet. The timing of where I was, we had to just stop. So all spring of 2020, you know, as the whole nation sort of stayed inside and stopped doing anything, everything was just on hold. I was just taking estrates and, and just maintaining that. And then at the end of June of 2020, Dr. Cardone gave me a call and said, okay, we're ready to start up. Again. So we did, we, we, the month of July was just, you know, we just did the one month this time. No, I think June of July. So anyway, the month of July was my, would, would be my transfer month. All of the normal things that I had done several times before now, it was all becoming sort of a routine. The injections, you have to give yourself a shot in the tushy. <laughs> it's a good thing, I have some mobility, but I'd go to the bathroom in the mirror and, and do that, all of that. So all of those things stayed the same. I have to be honest at this time and say I, I cut down a lot on my alcohol consumption because, you know, you're getting ready to have a baby you can't drink when you're pregnant. It was still a bit of an issue for me in, in the sense that it was helpful for me to at least have one drink at the end of the day. So I knew this would, this would be something that would I'd have to deal with once I became pregnant, which was not a problem. So at any rate, the end of July 2020, I have transfer day. So I go down and, and all of these restrictions with COVID, there's way less people there. I go into the exam room, you know, I'm ready and they tell me, you know, now at this point, Dr. Cardoni had, quasi I retired, I was sort of his last patient. It was a Sunday and he never came in on Sundays. So I was going to have a different doctor. And the nurse said, you'll have Dr. Leung and it will be fine. And so that was fine. You know, okay, this is how it is. So I'm sitting there waiting and all of a sudden the door opens. and Who is it? It's Dr. Cardoni. So everybody was so surprised. Like, what are you doing here? And he just grins. He has a beautiful smile. And he just says, She's, this one's mine. And so it was just this wonderful, it was just wonderful. So we did the transfer, you know, and, and it's so second nature, you know, I'm all worked up about it. and It's just second nature to these people because they do it all the time. And there's a little TV monitor, like an ultrasound monitor. And you can see the embryos as they float in because they're sort of like lime green. They're almost like radioactive looking. So you see them float in, there they are, they're in there. And so he showed me the pictures and these embryos, I have to say, look much Different than the first round. If I compared the pictures, they're so different. So he asked me, Did I think they looked better? And I said, I thought maybe so. And it was all said and done. And and he said, So what do you think? Do you think it will take? And I said, if it's supposed to, then it will take. And I'll have babies or a baby. And if not, then you and I met for some other reason. And it was COVID, so we couldn't hug. You know, we elbowed each other. And it was just such a really special moment. You know, we we walked out there and Kenny had driven down with me and he was in the car. And so Dr. Cardoni spoke to him you know, at the window and of the car, you know, it was just one of those things, you know, and so I did the, I did the, what you're supposed to, I go home and rest. Now we're talking August of 2020, go home. I, I had just purchased coach's house. So we were painting and doing a lot of work there. So I continued that. I tried not to think about it, but I'm pretty sure anyone that's done IVF will tell you, <laughs> they tell you don't do a pregnancy test. And I'm quite sure I peed on 56 over those next 10 days, all the time, all the time. And I have pictures of them because very, very very, very slowly, I started to see the line in the pregnancy side of the, of the test. Very, very faint at first and a little darker the next day and a little darker the next day. So I had also just started at this time meeting with my author, Virginia McGregor, who was helping me with my memoir. I brought up the fertility thing and just, you know, sitting and talking, everything in my life is tied into everything else. You know, and losing Molly and wanting a baby. So when we were sitting on my porch one day talking, you know, she said, oh my gosh, you try, when are you doing it? And, you know, when, when is all this happening? And I, you know, I said, actually in two days, it was like the end of July and we're having this conversation. So she knew that I had gone through this. So I sent her a picture of the embryo. I started sending a little picture of the pregnancy test. My sister-in-law, Kathy knew, and that was about it. And then oh, I had maybe one, one or two other people in my little circle. It's not official until you go down and have a blood test. And an ultrasound. So I, or I went down for a blood test, and that was August 5th. I'm home and I'm working at Coach's house, the house that I bought, cleaning up everything. And I get the call from Tammy, the nurse, that yes, indeed, I'm pregnant. I'm beside myself. I'm so excited and so happy. So I call my local OBGYN, Bapchaudery, to let him know. And he said, That's fantastic, but I don't believe I see you for 12 weeks. And his advice, again, doctors that understand the ins and outs of conception and pregnancy and you know, growing a baby and fertility, he said, You just need to forget about it right now. Live your life do what you're doing stay healthy stay well but don't obsess about it it's meant to be it will happen and i know that that can sound so fluffy but it really was helpful advice because any pregnancy the first 12 weeks you know the first three months or so are considered if a miscarriage is going to happen that's when most of them happen and they happen all the time to people before we had these t- pregnancy tests that you knew you're you know you're pregnant before you even late for your period. Sometimes women didn't really know they were pregnant until they had missed their second period. So, you know, by the time you've missed your second period, you're eight, nine, ten, you could be ten weeks pregnant. And that's when you find out you're pregnant. Now we know we're pregnant when we're, you know, five minutes pregnant. I went about, you know, getting coach's houses finished, house finished as much as I could, moving a tenant in. And then I just kept working out. You know, I, I was really finally, I, <laughs> the irony is I was finally under 140 pounds. I sort of had my pre-Molly dying Body back, and now here I was pregnant. I would giggle about that sometimes. So for for all of August and all of September, I just stayed quiet because that was what I was supposed to do. I worked out, I ate well, and non drinking was not a problem. And it was that way for me, you know. I'll get into my addiction issues in later podcast seasons. But when I when I can't drink because I'm not supposed to drink, I don't have a. All right, I won't drink. If there's nothing preventing me from it, my my mind will say, okay, it's five o'clock. It would be really good to have a drink right now. That's sort of my mindset. So. Not drinking was not a problem, but you have to create a new habit. There's a commercial on TV, and I've mentioned this before, about quitting smoking. And the people spill their coffee, and they put their pants on backwards, and they drive into street signs because they're used to doing everything with a cigarette. And so you have to create a new habit. In the first, like, six weeks of jack Jack, every night, Kenny and Gracie and I would go to Friendly's <laughs> and get ice cream, or to Arnie's, or... Whoopie twist with uh, your freakies somewhere to get ice cream. That was our new like nightly routine. Like, all right, if we can't drink, then we'll have ice cream. <laughs> and that waned away after a while. So I did nothing. I continued going to Dr. Cardoni. I do remember when I when I had the ultrasound and it showed one embryo, like one healthy baby. I was a bit bummed. My main reason for having Molly was that I wanted Gracie to have her buddy. Who do I wait for Santa with? Who do I play with? And so. That ride home was a bit tough because I I thought, okay, I'm gonna have this baby and he or she is gonna be all by themselves. And that's still something that niggles with me. I I had a conversation today with my brother, Jonathan. His son, Jonah is an only child and he's 12. And he, you know, his only cousins now are Gracie, who's 20 and Kelsey, who's in her thirties. He doesn't have relatives his age. And now he's got this baby boy cousin. So Jonathan and I talked a lot today about family. Like we need to connect them because maybe the age difference is big now, but when you're an adult, when, when Jack-Jack will be 30 and Jonah will be 42, that there's no age difference there. Now you're just both adults and, and we want them to be close. Driving home that day, that was sort of at the end of August, knowing that I had one baby in there. I have to say it was a, was a bit bittersweet because I was unbelievably happy that pregnancy had worked. Unbelievably sad that it was just one baby and not two. August and September were very, very much life as usual. I was working out. I was feeling great in my workouts. My weight really stayed the same for two months. I didn't gain much, maybe a couple of pounds. I just was, you know, in the process of not attaching too much. hope. whatever was going to happen was going to happen once I was at the 12 weeks. So you still take all the, all the hormones. So I was still doing the shots in my butt, wearing a patch, taking estrays for the first 12 weeks of the pregnancy. You don't stop any of that. And then you just stop at week. When week 12 is over, you just stop. So that's the first, I think, time that a lot of women be included with fear that, oh this is going to work. And at that time, I will I will say I had some spotting and it panicked me like crazy, but everything was fine. I remember calling Dr. Chaudhary to say, you know, is this normal? Is this normal? You know, I was just worried that I'd done something to hurt myself. At that point, I stop you stopped being a patient of your fertility specialist, and you are now a patient of your local OBGYN. Off I go to, you know, pregnancy appointments with Dr. Shottery. Now, Dr. Chaudhary had been a partner of Mike Walsh my OB that delivered Molly and Gracie. And so I've known him, you know, for 18 years. We had our first appointment and he, <laughs> he would, he's really been with me in this in the beginning, you know, way back in 2016 when I first had the idea that I was supposed to have a baby. I went to him, you know, and, and he'll be a part of the TV special and everything else. So he had a big grin on his face, you know, like, if anyone could do this, it's you. So I, you know, now that I was beyond the 12 weeks, we talked and he laid out all the testing I would have done. As I was 57 at the time, I had every test imaginable, every, every blood test, every physical, every ultrasound, every, everything that, that a person could have to ensure the health of the of the fetus, because I'm 57 and it's really, it's really uncharted territory. Now my body's doing all the work. I'm not taking anything supplementally. It's my 57 year old body growing the baby can I do it? So that was a huge piece of this. So I said, all right, well, when should I start telling people? And when should I let the news know and all this? And he just said, never, nothing. No, 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 no. And don't tell a soul until you've had all these tests because his theory was, okay, I tell a lot of people, oh, I'm 57 and I'm pregnant. And then I lose the baby. And maybe I lose the baby for something that has nothing to do with me being 57. But now I have to untell people. I have to go and say it didn't work. And then you open yourself up to judgment which I've, I've opened myself up to judgment many times in my life. So, I, so he, he said, look, do yourself a favor and just live, it, live under the radar right now. Don't tell anybody. So the only exception to that was my CrossFit coaches. And that's because I'm working out. And so it'd be helpful for them to know. So that was sort of a fun, that was a fun scenario, letting them know. I record, the first time I heard the heartbeat was like throat catcher. And that was with Dr. Shottery. So we, I filmed it, like I recorded it on my phone. And so the way that I told my CrossFit coaches that I was pregnant at 57 was letting them listen to the heartbeat. And of course their first reaction is, is Gracie having a baby? (laughs) She's 19 at the time, which is not too young, but so at any rate, no, no, it's not Gracie. It's me. So that was sort of a bit of news. and, And the standard response was like a straight face, like no, no response whatsoever, because I think sometimes I don't know how to react. So my CrossFit coaches knew at like 14, 15 weeks. So all through working out all through October, November, December, Getting up to 22 weeks, I continued working out. My tummy began to show a bit. And, you know, when you're in work, workout clothes, it's hard to hide that sort of thing. But I'm 50. I'm in my 50s and 50-year-old women always have this little menopause belly. And that's one of the signs of menopause is, you know, you increase in cortisol, cause you to retain belly fat. And cortisol is a stress hormone. When you can't sleep, you worry. And when you worry, you produce cortisol. It's a vicious circle of menopausal bliss. I was able to sort of put off speculation about, and, and nobody would look at me and think I was pregnant. You know, that, that wouldn't come to mind. So I could sort of say, yeah, menopause belly and all this. And it was just baby belly. (laughs) I went through all those months and I didn't have to make any modifications in my workouts at that time. My belly, growing belly wasn't super obvious right away. It was to me, obviously. During that time, I told Gracie and Gracie was, I have to be honest, really unbelievably devastated at the time. It was just too much for her to take. Her feelings are so utterly valid and were a huge piece of this whole procedure for us. She felt like, what am I not enough? You have to you have to have another baby because I'm not enough. And that comes up a lot with siblings. When siblings die, they're still here and they feel like the parents are obsessed with the dead sibling, which is true. We are because that sibling isn't here. So it's an incredible balance in families that have lost children, especially, to figure out how to move forward. And I imagine a child who lost a mother and then the dad remarries, they would feel that their dad is replacing their mother with some other lady. So I get it. And, and that was a huge piece of it for Gracie. She was livid that I hadn't included her in the process. And, and my thoughts were, you know, Gracie, you, you don't, this is something you didn't want and that worries you. I wasn't gonna not have the baby. I was going to follow through on this regardless. That's what mothers do. I didn't ask your permission to make Molly. You know, the, you know, parents do these things. Mothers make these decisions to have babies on their own. So this was a very difficult time. I will say one thing I love about Gracie and I loved it about Molly and I love it about how we navigate as a family with Kenny me, Gracie and Molly, is that we were always very, very good at not making the fight about the person. So it was about the issue. So, you know, Gracie was really mad at me, door slamming, that kind of stuff. But we live in the same house and we have to function day to day and we have enough going on. So she, she has every right to be angry and mad, but we had to be able to push the pause button to be able to say, okay, I'm angry, but we live here together, we need to be polite. So our dinner at night was fine. We talked about the day, I could help her with homework. Our day-to-day tasks could stay consistent. There was no name calling. There was no silent treatment. There was no shutting you off and avoiding you and ignoring me. We just don't do that in our family. It's not healthy. You have to work through things and be willing to communicate, even if it's uncomfortable. And it was unbelievably uncomfortable. I talked to Dr. Chaudhary about it. He said, let's make an appointment for her to come in. She went in and saw him and they had a whole conversation that was her. So she could be honest about how she felt. She's a terrific therapist. A lot of this is still hard for Gracie. The publicity, the interviews, she she gets very, very, very tender about talking about it. But the reality is she has this baby brother. And so her role in his life is whatever she wants it to be. And her role in the publicity of her old lady mother having a baby is also part of it. So at that time, Gracie was the only family member that we told. And it was difficult. But we went through it. We worked through it. We're a family and that's, that's what you did. So as we went along, it, you know, test after test, after test, everything was fine. A funny little piece of this at this time too, is my insurance would come back and all my, all my services and tests and ultrasounds would be denied. And the reason for denial was diagnosis inconsistent with age of patient. That's why my, my insurance wouldn't pay for me in my pregnancy care because I'm too old to be pregnant. So I must be making it up. It was really funny. So as I've talked about before, I had to spend a lot of time on the phone with the insurance company. So all of those things were sort of going along while I was growing this baby. Physically, I have to say I felt fine and I felt fine in all my pregnancies. I didn't feel tired. I don't get morning sickness. I I could eat whatever I wanted to eat. I didn't have any super strong cravings this time around. Hot tamales, maybe those cinnamon candies. Those are something I ate quite a bit of during the pregnancy. And shortly after I've given those up now because I needed to lose a little weight, But but really I just sailed along. So two big things happened in December. One was I was at a CrossFit fundraiser at my gym at Amoskade CrossFit. And it was just a workout that we all did together. But the, but the last piece of it was a plank. and You hold a plank as long as you can. So a plank is you're in push-up position, but you're on your elbows, not your hands. And you have to keep your body off the ground and flat. And so I did four minutes, a <laughs> four-minute plank. And I was, you know, like 20 weeks pregnant at the time. So people, I started the process of telling people. Like I told some school board members because I'm on the school board and I had told family members now, but I hadn't told a lot of people. And so I went to the gym and it's quite obvious I'm pregnant. And so I'm, you know, 57 at the time and I do this four minute plank and I'm very competitive. I could not do a four minute plank now, I don't think, because, because my motivation to do it in a competition is to be the best. So it's, I'm very ego driven that way. So the woman that fi- I finally came down, so I was sec- up there second longest. And the woman that, that was ahead of me is a really, really elite athlete in the gym. So that, that caused a bit of, you know, like, who is that woman? Cause I'm, cause the conquered fortune of Amoskeg is new. So it was just funny. I remember the next day the coach came up and he's like, you are a legend <laughs> because this, you know, 20 week pregnant, 57 year old lady could beat everyone except one person in the gym. doing the play. So it was sort of interesting. It was fun. And those are some of the fun things. The other significant piece of this story and the other, another little miracle here is I had to have a fetal echocardiogram um, on Jack. So we had just found out he was a boy as well. And actually that piece of news was a bit terrifying because the only boy I ever had, I lost and I'd been a mother of girls. And so part of me just wanted a girl because it would be similar, but the piece of that would have been, it's another girl. So now I'm repeating another Gracie, another Molly. It took me a little while. I, I was really nervous, not disappointed at all. Just like taking aback. back, like, what do I do now? And I have to say now that he's here, it's such a wonderful thing. He's such a different experience than, than Gracie and Molly. I'll tell you right now, boy babies and girl babies. So we have to go to Dartmouth-Hitchcock Children's, Children's Hospital at Dartmouth, which is in Manchester, New Hampshire. So we go there and it's the same place I had to go the day I learned that baby Gordy's heart was never going to keep him alive, that it was just not gonna work. And so I, obviously that's a trigger. And I, and I remember saying to Kenny, as we're driving down, yep, the glass hallway, the long bench, And he's looking at me like, what are you talking about? Cause his memory obviously isn't as profound as mine would be because the baby Gordy was inside of me. I collapsed in that hallway and cried and cried and cried when I found out that Gordy wouldn't live. So this was a difficult day. So we get in and I'm lying on the table and the, and that, the tech that's doing the ultrasound and the echo, you know, all the picturing sees my tattoo and, and, you know, hashtag Heart Molly Be the Miracle, and I'm wearing a, I'm wearing a shirt of the same, a tank top that's the same. So she asked about it, and I said, Well, my daughter Molly, and she says, Oh, you're Molly's mother. And I said, You know Molly, and and her her response was, You can't be a pediatric healthcare provider at Dartmouth Hitchcock and not know who Molly is. Her death was really profound and affected everybody, and is used as a barometer to are we giving thorough care, are we asking all the questions, are we doing what we're supposed to do. So that eases my heart because my big fear is that Molly will just disappear, that she won't remember. So there was that piece. And then, and then I talked about Rachel and, and the kidney transplant. And, and so she begins to to weep and cry a bit because it's pretty emotional. Then I tell her about baby Gordy and how traumatic it is for us to be here because we've lost a baby. And this was the final test that let us know. So I share this, all this whole story with her, you know, and this is 20, 21 years after Gordy would have been born. He would have been born in 1999. Now it's 2020. The cardiologist comes in. She's a woman whose name I can't remember. And she says, tell me a bit about this baby you lost. And so I started sharing with her about baby Gordy and the heart defect. And she asked me, what was it? Did I remember? And I remembered it all. Transposition of the great arteries, basically upside down and backwards. The atrium was on the bottom, the ventricle on the top. So the heart would flood. It wouldn't, you know, wouldn't just wouldn't work properly. If Gordy had been able to, had been born, had lived nine months and been born alive. It was just a traumatic thing. And she said, now, when was this? In August and all this. Well, come to find out, she was on staff at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia when baby Gordy's little body went there. And she remembered all of that. She remembered the heart defect, she remembered the donation. And we talked about how difficult it was for a lot of mothers to donate their children's bodies. Now, it wasn't like I could flippantly give this little baby away but I didn't know I was pregnant until 14 weeks and two weeks later I find out there's a heart defect, you know? so now I'm at 16 weeks. And then nine weeks later I, I give birth to, I have a stillborn baby, you know, he's not born alive. I didn't have a lot of time to bond with him, although I, I did feel him move. And that was, that was a turning point for me because now I realized, Oh my God, I'm feeling this baby move. And, and I, you know, I'd never been pregnant. And I, and I said in an earlier podcast, that really made me realize I wanted to be a mother. So when the question came, what do we do? well, I would have had to have him cremated, which I'm not comfortable with. I would have had to buy a cemetery plot and bury him. Or I would have had to, you know, I don't know. I think that you can just take, that they just dispose of the baby. And none of that, it just sounded awful to me. This is, this was a little baby, this little soul house. <laughs> so I was happy to donate his body because I knew that if, if there was a purpose in my tragedy, it was that maybe it could help someone else. So all of that came back and I've talked about how we got all the, that information. So I shared all this with the doctor and she was saying how, grateful met the medical community is when mothers can make these sacrifices because seeing a seeing a heart defect on a screen and seeing it in 3D is two completely different things. And so I just, Kenny and I, 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 we couldn't talk the whole drive home, we just sat in stunned silence because what is the chance that we would have her and that she would not only have been there when baby Gordy was there, but that she would remember and we would have this conversation. So the, the part of her that was unique is that she never works she typically works on the other side of the office with adults, and she had come in on a Tuesday when she doesn't work on Tuesdays. But there was a staffing something was going on, and she came in. So she wasn't even supposed to be a part of it. And when they saw my age, they thought that I was in the wrong place—that I was supposed to have my heart looked at, not a baby heart. That was another sort of big piece of our process in this was that we had that connection. So she was just very excited for us, and and a bit taken aback that you know we were 22 weeks into this and it was working. So this was, this was right around the holidays, right around Christmas. And this was the time that we could, you know, be, begin to start telling people. I would say 99.9% of, of the response was positive. I have a very, very welcoming, wonderful family on my side, my mother's side, uh, well, both sides, I have to be honest. And so as as unique and weird as it is to have a baby this age, people, my my family was just pumped and excited, like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. And you know, another baby around and all that kind of stuff. And Kenny's family as well. His mother, who's in her nineties, just, of course, Barb's pregnant. That's what she would do. You know, she, she was, you know, just thrilled to his sister and brother and their families were super excited, you know, and, and it was just sort of interesting. His adult children struggled a bit. I have to be honest, his daughter is, was devastated by this news. And again, people have the right to respond the way they respond. That's not, it's not my job to tell people how to react. My overriding feeling as a baby is always good news. <laughs> there's no such thing as, a, as bad news with a baby. So his adult children, his son, Penny, is fine and has met Jack a couple of times. His other two children, Katie and Davy, are struggling. And they get to struggle. They, you know, they have young babies of their own and are raising families. And we all truly want to do the best that we can. That was a hard time. Come to Christmas, we can't go to Florida this year. All the COVID things, it, it just doesn't make sense for us to go. So we don't. We stay home. And it's the first Christmas now that we've not gone away. So on Christmas Eve day, Gracie's working at the liquor store. And I took out Skylar, one of Molly's friends to get a COVID test because she was going to go to Hawaii with her dad. And we had to have a negative test. So we had to drive like three and a half hours up into Maine (laughs) to find a pharmacy that hadn't available appointment. So I spend the day with Skylar and, you know, and Aaron has my daughter. I have her daughter. So long story short, end of Christmas Eve, it's about five o'clock. I get a phone call that Gracie is swollen up. And drooling and having a hard time breathing and itchy eyes from a muffin that she ate. There's something in a muffin that she's had this huge reaction to. So of course now it's Christmas Eve, right? What goes through my head? Anaphylaxis, Rachel. So I so I said, yeah, go. I said, call Daddy. She's at the liquor store, which is like right close to our house, and get an EpiPen and take an EpiPen and go to the ER. So keep in mind now it's Christmas Eve, so that's a hard enough time for us. I'm I'm not with her. I'm I'm three hours away yet. And I wasn't with Molly when she got real sick before she died. Rachel, a huge piece of our reality, died from anaphylaxis. And now Gracie's having a really bad reaction. So off she goes to the ER, a place that the last time she was there at the hospital, her sister died. COVID, because Gracie's 18, Kenny can't go in with her. So Kenny's at home. I'm driving home. Gracie's in the ER by herself. It's a, just a mess. It's so stressful. Everything was fine. I have to say that the, the hospital took incredible care of Gracie. And we went to the pharmacy in the morning to get some prednisone and other meds that she would need. And that pharmacist has a, has a son with, an, with a food allergies. And he was so, so supportive and grateful and kind to Gracie. So that experience, again, was wonderful. But it was a very traumatic and stressful Christmas for us, <laughs> a holiday we like to forget now. So on we go. The pregnancy continued really well. I started going twice a week. And you know, and I, I did urine tests. And, and they did little heart tests on Jack to make sure his heart, well, he wasn't stressed out. Way more appointments than a normal 25 or 35-year-old pregnant woman would have. But Dr. Chaudhary was just dedicated to the fact, to the mission, that we be one step ahead of anything that could go wrong. And again, people say, do you think anything would go wrong? I, I was never afraid that it would. I'm very healthy. My blood pressure stayed low. Other than the pre-eclampsia, some of the preeclampsia weight at the very end, I gained minimal weight. And I'll get to the preeclampsia in a minute. I gained like 25 pounds, 30 pounds. That, that was it. You know, I only gained it in my belly. I didn't have a super fat face. I didn't have fat hands. I wasn't swollen at that time. So all through January and February. Now the due date's April 13th. So of course I'm thinking another April baby. Molly was April 1st and Gracie April 24th. So this was all sort of a great relief to me. Like, even though it's a boy, it's different and he'll be born in between Molly and Gracie. And so 40 weeks would have been April 13th. So that was sort of the eye on the prize, 13. Molly was 13th, all these, all these things. At my age, they would not let me go to 40 weeks. If I was if I was still pregnant 39 weeks, I would go in and be induced. And I think there are some risks that come at the very end of pregnancies for everybody, but especially for women who are older. So all of these things were sort of into play. Another person that I started to confide in and send pictures to and, and share is Carol Leonard. And she also has a podcast and she's written a couple of books. And she she paved the way for midwives in New Hampshire and probably nationwide and worldwide. She's unabashedly honest and not afraid to say it like it is. She's lived an unbelievably wonderful, tragic, beautiful life. And so she became a part of it and would ask questions and all this. So I kept her apprised of it as well. So we're marching through winter. It's January, it's February, and I'm feeling great. And all my CrossFit mummies are having their babies. I was the last one, slated to be the last, and I think I still was. So March comes and I'm thinking, all right, March, this is the last month. And then April will come. And I really wanted Dr. Shottery to deliver the baby. So For the most of this pregnancy, I have to be honest, I just felt like I was on the ride. You know, whatever happens is supposed to happen. I tried to stay detached. I was telling a handful more people every day, but it was not news. Like it didn't get to the news or anything like that. Going through March, thinking that I would have the baby in early April, Dr. Shottery, you know, made some plans to go away for a weekend. So Wednesday, the 17th, so St. Patrick's Day. I had a doctor's appointment for my lungs and everything. And I looked fine. My blood pressure was low, like, you know, 125 over 65. Everything was normal and fine. Went to the gym after, you know, getting started, really starting now the whole nesting thing, getting the house ready, telling more people, all that. Thursday, I go to, I wake up and I had started to notice my legs were getting really swollen, like in a way that I hadn't noticed before. Like my knees got really huge. So Thursday, then the 18th, I went For my little stress test and urine test, my blood pressure was high. It was like, you know, 175 or or 165 over 80. And it was, that was odd. And so I, you know, peed the cup and there was protein in my urine. So high blood pressure and protein in the urine indicate potential preeclampsia. So Dr. Chaudhary sends me across the street to Concord Hospital to the the birthing place, the family place. And I have a blood test and, and they look for platelets and platelet count, a low platelet count also indicates preeclampsia so i had a very low platelet count it's like 107 or we under 100 they probably wouldn't let me go home suddenly i decided i need to be a pain in the ass and i'm like no i don't want to have the baby now i want to have the baby in april dr Chattery's supposed to deliver it he was going away so they said well you can have the baby right now well, i didn't want the baby right now like i just wasn't ready it, it was very difficult for me to accept the fact that my body was failing me that's how i felt actually preeclampsia is the universe's way of saving babies because you get so sick that it's clear the baby has to come out. And nothing is wrong with a baby in preeclampsia. It's the mother. Whatever causes the preeclampsia can be related to, can be related to things with the baby. But, in, and it happens to amazing you know women of all ages, healthy, unhealthy. It really had nothing to do with me being 57. They gave me some steroids, which would help Jack's lungs and just him. And then it also raises platelet counts. So they said, well, go home and come back tomorrow and don't, don't do anything. So of course I got on the stationary bike. I wanted my legs to get less swollen. And I didn't pedal hard or out of breath. I just put a TV show on and watched. I slept on the couch because I was more comfortable downstairs. And I woke up two or three times a night and took my blood pressure. And it actually got pretty low in the night. So that gave me relief. I went back the next afternoon, which is now Friday. Dr. Shottery is gone. And he was sort of gave mixed emotions. Like he's like, let them know that I said you can just wait till Monday. And then, but he told them, no, if she's got preeclampsia, she needs to come in and have a baby. So he was just sort of easing my mind, like knowing that. (laughs) <laughs> I was going to be a jerk, and just refuse to stay. So Friday afternoon, the 19th, I go to Concord Hospital. I have my blood work and everything. And now my blood pressure is 197 over 95. So the doctor, she's not going to not, not gonna give an inch. And she goes, look, I don't want to let you leave here. You know, and I had driven there. I had the car. I didn't have anything with me. And I also hadn't done, like, like my sister hadn't even seen me pregnant yet. I hadn't had, I was going to have pregnancy pictures taken. I hadn't done any of these things. And I, and I was just like, ah. Because I thought I still had three weeks. So I convinced this sweet doctor, <laughs> Mary, I can't think of her last name. Of course, her name was Mary, to let me go home and just get, pack a bag, and I'd be back in a half an hour. So I was, I was. it took me about two hours. But she did threaten to call the police in 911 if I didn't come back and send somebody to get me. And I live like a half mile from the hospital as the crow flies. So, so I went home. I called my friend Erin. She took a bunch of pictures. I got my sister to come over to see me. And I packed a bag. And off I went to Concord Hospital. Gracie was, of course, a bit freaked out because this was not all, we really all mentally thought we had more time to prepare. And so I went, I went to the hospital, checked in, I went by myself. Kenny went stayed home because Gracie was home. And we had to figure, you know, she would need somebody either to come stay with her or she could go stay. So she went to the Hunger's, of course. Thank God for Jennifer Hunger. She's Gracie's other mother and Allie, her sister that she can complained, complain to about me. I go to the hospital, get checked in and get prepared for induction. So typically, labor inductions. be difficult because the body isn't ready to have the baby. And so the body fights it or just doesn't cooperate. And women who are induced can be in labor for two or three days. So that's what I thought I had ahead of me. I really thought that, that this baby would take a long time to be born. Molly and Gracie were eight hours start to finish. So actually baby Gordy was a longer, It took me like 12 hours (laughs) to get that little one pound baby out of me. At any rate, I went and so they checked me all in, got the IVs running, got me all ready. I had dinner, watched some TV. The physician, the OBGYN, came in and she did what's called stripping my membrane. So what that means is they irritate the cervix. So you have a mucus plug in your cervix that keeps the germs out and all this. So they 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 irritate that so that it will let go and, and it sometimes stimulates the thin thinning of the cervix, which then stimulates contractions, which makes the baby come. So they did that. And that was an unbelievably painful experience. I would not had to have that done with Gracie and Molly. It was horrifying. <laughs> it was like a scene right out of Handmaid's Tale. <laughs> You've got the, the nurses holding you down and the doctor stripping your membranes cause they have to get up in there. It was, <laughs> it, it's funny. It was painful, but funny. And then they insert medicine up there to up into your vagina, to your cervix. that again, thins the wall, the opening and helps the cervix, efface, become thin and open. So after a few hours of this, it would begin Pitocin and Pitocin is a medicine that makes your uterus contract. It makes any muscle contract. I had to have Pitocin with Molly because halfway into the pushing phase, she decided she didn't want to come out and my contractions completely stopped. And so they gave me Pitocin for her and she shut out like a football. I had been, I'm familiar with Pitocin. So I go to sleep and I wake up a couple of times and are you going to give me the Pitocin? And so I don't, I don't, really remember everything. I wake up in the morning and my first thought is, oh, I guess I'm not having a baby because I woke up and it was morning. And I thought if I'm going to go into labor that I would feel it, I would feel the Pitocin. So I get up and I call and order breakfast and coffee and that gets delivered. And I'm, you know, I pee and I'm walking around the room and everything. And the physician comes in, the OB before she leaves and the new one comes and she's like, well, how are you feeling? And I'm like, I feel fine. Are we not having a baby today? And she looks at me puzzled and she said, Barbara, you went into labor at three o'clock this morning. So from 3 a.m. to 9 a.m., I just slept. I didn't know I was in labor. I did, it didn't wake me up. My tummy felt hot. I will say, I I when I was drinking my coffee and eating, I thought my stomach is hot. So th- those were the contractions, but I didn't. That's all I felt for for most of the morning. Kenny was gonna go with Gracie to her dance competition, thinking that a lot of my labor would you know would be hours and hours, and and he could be supportive. So I called him and I said, no, maybe you just need a driver there and come back. And so as as my the morning is progressing, the doctor says, you know, you really ought to get Kenny here. This could be this could be a much earlier baby. So in my mind, I don't feel like I'm in labor yet because I haven't had the oop, my water broke oop, first contraction. You know, there are very, very specific things that women remember in their labor experience. And labor, the part of laboring until you're ready to push the baby out, is a significant piece of it. And I didn't feel like I was having it. I, I mean, I, I felt some contractions. I saw they put the monitor on. Um, I began to feel a little bit nauseous, which sometimes happens. And I could see the contractions on the monitor. So I had all this external proof that this was actually happening. Jack-Jack's little heartbeat, but I just was still not in a place. So then they checked my cervix, and I'm, now I'm dilating. i five centimeters. I'm six centimeters. So they say, you know, maybe Kenny needs to come here now. So we made arrangements for Gracie to get picked up by the Hungers and go there. And she dances a tap duo with Allie, this beautiful dance called Bruise Not Broken. And that was one of their dances. And they were dancing that fairly early on in the competition. So Kenny arranges all that and shows up at the hospital. So then they break my water. And so boy, do the contractions start then. So anyone that's had to have their water broken, it, it really does accelerate labor because the, I think it's the amniotic fluid on the cervix, all of it, the, the body, is a natural thing. So the contractions became incredibly painful and I just wasn't sure. I said, you know, how long is this gonna last? And, and they said, well, you know, it could be 10 minutes. It could be five hours. So I said, well, if this is gonna last a long time, I, I'd like an epidural. And I never had an epidural before. I was in so much pain. I, I, I didn't ease into it. It was no contractions at all knifing contractions. And I thought, you know, I'm too old to be a hero. I just want to you know, be numb out and relax and labor while I sleep. So I came and had the epidural and nothing. It didn't, it didn't numb anything. It didn't numb my legs, it numbed nothing. So apparently that's a sign that had gone beyond the time that an epidural would work, that I'm into the next active phase of labor, which would be pushing. But I didn't even have the desire to push. Like, and, and I remember with Gracie and Molly saying, well, I remember with Gracie that, that I knew I was ready to push when I said to the doctor, Every time I have a contraction, I feel like I want to go poop or I want to growl. And he giggled. He goes, Well, you should try to do both, because that's that's what pushing is. You're ready to push. And so the contractions come, and every time you have a contraction, you push. So I laid down on the bed and they checked, they checked, and, and the doctor said, You know, I can feel his head right here. So, so let's why don't you have give a push next time? So I just was out of it and I'm like, okay, fine, I'll push. So I did a little push and nothing. And she goes, Come on, you can do better than that. His head is right there. So we waited for the next contraction. And so on the next contraction, I pushed as hard as I could and his head came right out. She goes, oh my gosh, his head is out. And I kept pushing and his whole body came up. (laughs) So Jack Jack was, for me, an hour of labor and a push and a half. Here's baby Jack. And everyone was shocked. I mean, I'm shocked because no one was expecting that he would come up that fast. So he came up on my chest. For me, that's, that's an incredibly precious piece of the whole process because here's a life that I created and grew, and here he is on my chest, this little teeny perfect baby, and he was so little. So everyone's scuttling around, cleaning up all the mess that comes out with the baby and getting all the heavy heavy equipment comes in, the heating, you know, the little incubators, everything comes in that look, whatever might be wrong or need assistance, attention at the time. So I'm just holding Jack and he pushes his little hands into my chest and lifts his head up and looks at me and then flops down. The most amazing thing, the most amazing thing ever that a newborn baby could even for a millisecond lift up his head. But boy, did I feel <laughs> that that was Molly dolly saying, Hey mom, I'm right here. And now I'm going to go be with Gracie. He was fine. There was just perfectly fine. Five pounds, 13 ounces, sweet little baby. So they, they did all the things that they do, wrapped them up, swallowed them up, everything else. I started to get really freezing cold. They put all these heated blankets on me, put Jack underneath with me. And there it was. And then my lunch came. <laughs> I ordered lunch. So I ordered breakfast and ate it. had a baby had lunch. <laughs> and that was the birth of Jack. So You know, the whole thing was really, really just incredible. The whole pregnancy, the telling people, the preeclampsia, really worrying about that. I have a new respect now for the body because now that we have medical technology, preeclampsia is just a sign that we need to get the baby out, that the mother's in danger. Hundreds of years ago, when there was no way to get the baby out before it was ready, women would die of this. But it's one of those things that as you improve medical technology, begin to understand the body. It's nature's way of warning the mother something's not right with her the baby spine. So that was a good lesson for me. An incredibly good lesson. Uh, A couple hours after his birth, I got a, I got a text message from Miss Cindy Flanagan that Gracie and Allie had just nailed. She said it was such a spiritually beautiful routine. It was the first time that she really felt Molly and Rachel were there with them. And I truly believe they were, again, this goes back to your own beliefs, but that was an emotional day for everybody. And it would make perfect sense that Rachel and Molly would be right there taking care of me and taking care of Gracie. So yeah, that's that's that. So I think I'll stop here because there's a lot of detail that I can get into around Jack. But March 20th at 1231 p.m., little Jack Jack came into the world. <laughs> An hour of contractions and a push and a half. And here he was, five pounds 13 ounces, 18 and a half inches long. Teeny tiny. So little and so cute. So yeah, and mom and baby handled it well. That is the story of the IVF piece, what it was like to be pregnant and what it was like to give birth. A lot of information in one podcast, but as I as I tell the story, I feel that you can't really break that part down. It's one gigantic story. I hope you all have a wonderful day. You know, I always tell you that my my ending message will, will always be about presenting the opportunity for someone to be happy, either yourself or someone else. I was talking to Gracie this morning and I said, uh, one of my biggest problems is I don't take care of myself. I have a good friend, Sean Snow, shout out to you, S2. And he's an athlete and he gets up at like 3.30 in the morning. Every day, and he always leaves a post next to a cup of coffee, like a little saying. And he has a morning routine that he started several years ago, five years ago or so. And, and he goes to bed early and gets up early, and he spends those these early morning hours by himself, meditating and reading, doing some yoga, reflecting, having gratitude. And I said to Gracie, I need, boy, do I have to just be vigilant about this type of activity because it's important that I do this. And she said, Self care is not selfish, mom. <laughs> so let's all practice some self care do that for yourself. And as always, thank you for listening. If you have, you know, questions and all of that, you can always, you know, reach out. I would love to, um, I'll answer any question anyone has, but I really do appreciate those of you who listen and those of you who let me know that you like it. It means a lot to me. So have a good day, everybody. Hey, thanks for listening and for supporting a thousand times steps. I hope you enjoyed the episode and will continue to listen. Feel free to leave a review and share my stories with your friends awesome. Please reach out if you have stories to share. I love hearing from and connecting with my listeners. If you would like to know what I'll be talking about down the road, you can find me on Instagram at Barb underscore 444, on Facebook as Barb Higgins, and at my website, www.1000tinysteps.com.